Oh, I am fine. Excellent. Well, welcome everybody to tonight's Nexum lecture. In fact, I am delighted that you can be with us tonight. Actually, I want to take a few minutes and say why I think what we're seeing tonight is remarkably important. I do think on the one side that the earth sciences are undergoing an extremely unusual period. They're going this period largely because on the one side we're able to measure and look at our planet in details that we have never seen before. And I mention only satellite observations or others that you may be familiar with. On the other side, we're able to embed our theories and our understanding about how this planet works to great sophistication in mathematical and also in computational models. Some of that you're, for example, familiar when you look at weather forecasts. Now, in some sense, these two things coming together allow us to study how this planet works and operates in ways that I think even a few years ago we would have not thought about it. In particular, I think one of the most important things that we're starting to understand and see is how the planet deep below you, the deep planet, the 6,000 kilometers of rock and iron that is below your feet, I think I'll need to go back to here, interact with the atmosphere and the ocean all around you. And in fact, I think that is important not only because it is historically what has made the history of this planet warm periods and cold periods, mass extinctions as we will see later today, but also because we are arguably right now in one of the most unusual periods of our planet. And if we want to understand how this planet behaves, we must understand how it did behave over time. One of the people that has crossed this boundary probably more than anybody in the most remarkable and fluent way is the speaker tonight. Our speaker tonight is Professor Vincent Cotillot from the Institut Physique du Globe in Paris, France's most premier research institution. Technically, Professor Cordillo has spent a lot of his research on understanding how the magnetic field of the Earth works. But I think over the course of that, he has also made a very remarkable crossover to understanding how that aspect of deep Earth affects what is one of the most vexing questions of the Earth's history. That is, why at some point in Earth's history life forms choose to die out 90% of all the existing life forms on the planet, what we know as mass extinctions. That to me itself is a remarkable intellectual crossover, but I think there's another thing that I should say is a remarkable intellectual crossover of the speaker tonight, and that is not only has Professor Cordillo been extremely successful and remarkable in his research contributions, he's been the director of the Institut Physique du Globe, and he has made many outstanding scientific contributions, but in fact, at some point he has taken on the call, and he mentioned that to me, of what I consider deep civic duty. The state of France has asked him to be the vice uh, minister of research in charge of all of research in France. And in fact, he has done that call of duty twice. And in fact, he told me just the other night that he controlled a research budget of $10 billion of research funds for all of France. Well, he's done that twice and each time for four years because he assures me that this is about as long as a scientist can possibly handle to be in government. 
he also told me, and that's something that I've seen from personal observation, that even while he was Deputy Minister of Science and Education in France, one day per week he came to the Institut Physique du Globe and he looked after his graduate students. And that, I think, shows a remarkable commitment to research and to science. Now, with this sort of broad view as a person that both scientifically as well as personally tries to straddle the boundaries of what we normally have as confined ways of looking and organizing our life, I would say that I'm extremely delighted that Professor Cordillo tonight is coming to us and will shed a little bit of what I consider very recent and novel light of how we could see what is arguably one of the most remarkable interactions between the deep earth and life on earth, and that is understanding what is possibly at least one potential cause of mass extinctions. I'll be delighted that you're here, and I deeply appreciate it. Well, Peter, thank you very much for your kind words and uh, your generous introduction. Uh, what you said and what I heard over dinner brings three things to my mind, which I'd like to talk about shortly before really starting this uh, lecture. Uh, the first one is to tell you how happy I am to be in Princeton. Uh, I don't know why it took me so long to come here. Uh, I've spent two days of extremely interesting and friendly talks with professors, researchers, graduate students here. I knew how great this institution was, particularly in the earth sciences. I've checked it and how lively and friendly, and I've had a great two days. And uh, again, I don't know why it took me so long to finally come over. Well, maybe you should have invited me earlier. I guess that's the answer, but uh, that's not a good answer. Uh, my second point is uh, to ask you to forgive me for a reason that was stated by a lady who was uh, with us at dinner, and uh, that's using a barbarian word in my title with the notion uh, that it would repel a lot of people from attending this lecture, because, I mean, what in the hell is the Phanerozoic? So... Uh, I'm sure many of you know, but uh, a quick translation is basically the geological time over which we have fossil evidence for life, which is, say, the last 600 million years of Earth history. So the translation of my title is uh, mass extinctions. Peter, you said why species choose to die. I'm not sure they choose, but, uh, uh, but they happen to disappear. And uh, so I'm going to talk about the fact that apparently... Uh, Maybe before that, but since we have records from uh, observations of fossils, we know that there have been strange times when indeed lots of species on Earth have disappeared in what we geologists think is an incredibly small amount of time. My, my third non-scientific comment, before I really get started, you are evoking the time I spent in, in government, which was uh, very different from academic life and quite fascinating and quite strange. It was sort of a sociological experience. One day, I remember, I just had shared the Christmas party at the Division of uh, uh, Geosciences, and I remember a, uh, an, a holiday party at the Ministry of Research and Education where then Minister of Education Lionel Jospin, who was to become uh, Prime Minister later, uh, uh, explained to the people there that the reason he had selected me as one of his advisors and directors was because I was a specialist in dinosaur extinction, which, by the way, I'm not. 
uh, and he felt it could be useful in reforming this ministry, which had lots of dinosaur-like bureaucrats that needed to be pushed towards extinction. So I was told that was the reason I was uh, appointed. Okay, on a more serious note, uh, what gets us started is uh, the notion of species. We, you all know that there's only one species of men, which means that, uh, in principle, even though trying out would probably be a little bit tiring, any one of us in the age of mating could reproduce with any, anyone else from the opposite sex, regardless of what people have introduced as being race. There's only one species of men. There are species of other animals. Diversity of species is something people have become aware of, and uh, those people who are uh, nature-minded and worry about conservation uh, believe that the diversity of species is, and, and they're right in believing that, is the results of eons of uh, natural experimenting and evolution by life on Earth, which uh, is a lot of information which has memory about past processes and uh, which uh, should be preserved. Measuring the diversity of life on Earth is not an easy thing. We, again, we're discussing at dinner time uh, that we don't even know how many species are alive on Earth today. We know that over a million species have been actually observed and described in scientific text in the last 200 years. Uh, we don't know how many are yet to be discovered. There are new species being discovered every day, and I was told that the count of species could be anywhere between a few million and maybe as many as 10 times more. So we really don't know uh, uh, how immense the diversity of species can be. And yet these species which are all around us, they're like individuals. They are born, they live, and they die. They have a finite lifetime. The finite lifetime of species is not an easy average quantity to determine. The order of magnitude is something like a million years. And for those of you who are not Earth scientists or not accustomed to the deep uh, depth of geological time, we have to deal with times which are hard to fathom, hard to imagine, and a million years for us is a fairly short unit of time. Uh, we're going to count millions of years pretty much in the uh, mental way that uh, people my age, 50 years old, consider something like a month, maybe less than a month. So we have to have these visions of the length of time of the Earth, history, 4,550 millions of these years, 5,000 units of time. Well, the typical lifetime of a species is one. Of course, there are species, you know, as fossil I mean, living fossils that endure for more than 100 million years. But the average time is something like one. And knowing that men as a species uh, is about one million years old might make us think, gee, are we uh, over or not? The fact that species have a finite lifetime and that they become extinct has long remained a neglected process. And as an indication, I went back to Darwin's Origin of Species and tried to locate in an edition I have, which is 450 pages long, how many times he mentioned extinction. They are mentioned only four times in a 450-page book, and I have a partial quotation here of what he says about it. Not much. He's not really interested. He doesn't think it's so important. And he said that apparent sudden, sudden extermination of species 
is probably due to wide intervals of time during which there is much slow extermination. So his idea, which is very much the idea being behind 19th century geology, is that anything that seems large in geology is simply because it's, there's been so much time during which small increments of something happen, rising a mountain, uh, uh, forming coal, uh, uh, eroding a, a, a mountain or a valley, or having species become extinct and appear. This state of things didn't change much until the 70s. I picked up a 1971 paleontology textbook, which is the book I had as a young graduate student at Stanford. One only out of 400 pages mentioned extinctions and clearly not as a very interesting or understood subject. It's only after 1980, for reasons I'm sure all of you are familiar with, which is the famous Alvarez hypothesis that dinosaurs disappeared because of meteorite impact, which to a large extent revived interest in the uh, general scientific community in many diverse areas of the sciences, an incredibly broad spectrum actually. And uh, uh, I took a French paleontology textbook written by one of my colleagues in 1986, and in that case I found that 32 pages were discussing mass extinctions and extinctions in general out of a total of 270 pages. This is a small sample, but it's really giving you a good view of the fact that until only a couple decades ago, there was really not much understanding and interest for that topic. And yet, paleontologists carefully, slowly, painfully working or painstakingly working uh, for more than 200 years have amassed through observation of fossils an enormous amount of knowledge about past forms of life on Earth and the way diversity changed on Earth. And the way they usually measure this is the curve which you're seeing on the lower right-hand side here, which shows we could discuss that if some of you are interested in the discussion afterwards, because it is not a straightforward notion. One of the ways we measure diversity on Earth is by counting the number of families, which are groups of species, of tiny marine animals, marine because they can spread over the world, tiny because there's a general law that there's an inverse relationship between the size of beings and the population. There are, in general, few large animals and lots of small ones. There are more elephants. I mean, I'm sorry, there are more rats than elephants. Man is rather unique in having developed well outside of that distribution and being represented by far more individuals than it should, given its size, if the general uh, regulations of the rest of the living world applied. So using these minute marine fossils, uh, paleontologists have uh, painted a picture of uh, evolution of life on Earth, which is represented by this curve. Time is flowing from the lower left uh, at minus 600 million years to the present to the right. You see life evolving very fast in the early days. This is what is called the phanerozoic. Phaneros means to show, to appear in Greek. Zoic is the root for life. So it's a time when life shows up through fossils. It doesn't mean life did not exist before. It just means it was in such a shape that it's not easy to record. Basically, the hard skeleton had not yet been invented by evolution. So this big rise you see here, which is called the Cambrian explosion, is when most of the uh, current uh, biological plans of life appeared. And you see that the thing leveled off uh, for a long time until 250 million years ago, you have a very sharp drop. 
There, there are slight drops before that, and there's a big question as to how many of these are actually significant because this is a non-scientific curve. Any scientific curve should have clear data points and should have error bars in all dimensions. You should know how uncertain you are on timing and how uncertain you are on counting the number of species. These are missing from here, and that's a real problem, and we're not really sure we know these error bars very well. But you see some dips. You see one here, one here, which might be real, More, most likely are real. But you see that there's a huge one 250 million years ago. It's so large that it was observed as early as the mid-19th century. This is what was used to define the first geological time scale. This was the division between the Paleozoic era, or the primary in European countries, or some European countries, and the Mesozoic era, or secondary. The Mesozoic is the era of the dinosaurs, and better known as such. Again, Greek roots tell us that Paleos, Palaios means old, uh, Meso means mean, so it's the age of old life and the age of mean life, which were the terms selected by 19th century geologists to show that big gap in the record, which they clearly saw as a major change in the population of fossils they were observing as they worked up through the uh, column of rocks, the stratigraphic column. Then you see after this major division, life diversity increasing again. It's got a few jogs and accidents. This one, which is not such a conspicuous one, is the one when dinosaurs disappeared. 65 million years ago, there was a dip in the diversity of species. Families disappeared. And uh, this is what makes, marks the boundary between the Mesozoic and the Cenozoic era. Again, for those who like Greek, kainos means recent. So this is the era of recent life. So you have old life, middle life, recent life, separated by two major crises. But you see that there are other crises. And all those have been used in building up slowly throughout the 19th century the geological uh, time scale, whose names you can see uh, in the middle of the picture. And many of you probably uh, had to learn some of those names and probably disliked it deeply and got bored. And uh, I hope one of the things I'll show you is that basically the names of the geological periods are marking fundamental times in the Earth's history. They're marking the pulse of the internal Earth. And that's one of the messages I hope I'll leave you with. We're interested in knowing the rate of extinction. The rate is a velocity. The velocity in mathematical terms is a time derivative. The curve on top is essentially the slope of the lower curve or the rate of change of extinction of species as a function of time. It's been evaluated every, I think, six or 10 million years in that particular example. You see that there is extinction going on all the time. So notion number one, Extinction is a normal process of evolution. There are extinctions going on all the time. It seems like, as you see from the gray band decreasing from the past to the present, that there is a background rate that is sort of jagged of mass extinctions, which seems to have decreased a little bit uh, from the beginning of the Phanerozoic era to the present time. And then, above that band of background normal extinction level, you see that there are peaks sticking out. You can count five such peaks, and these peaks have been known to be times when uh, unusually high numbers of species disappear in unusually short times. When this curve was first derived, 
the precision with which time was measured was such that some of these points could not be told apart. We can do much better now, as you will see later in the presentation. The peak furthest to the right is the time of disappearance of the dinosaurs and many other species. Probably two-thirds of the species disappeared at that time. I'd like to pause for a moment here to try and make you imagine what such a mass extinction means. It means that all individuals from two-thirds of all of the millions of species existing on Earth were wiped out in a short geological time from the surface of the Earth. Clearly, at such times, the biological stress must have been such that those species that survived were hard-pressed. And actually, individuals from these species died out in masses you don't need that many individuals to continue the inheritance of life and go through a mass extinction. An extinction of two-thirds of the species, such as was the case at the Cretaceous, Tertiary, or Mesozoic, Cenozoic boundary 65 million years ago, may translate into as many as 80% of the total number of individuals of any species, the biomass, disappearing from the Earth in a short time. And this was not by far the largest mass extinction. You see earlier peaks altogether. There are five great mass extinctions. The previous one sticking out around 200 million years is the so-called Triassic-Jurassic boundary. The one before, a huge peak with two points, that's the third one starting from present or from right on this figure, is the famous Mesozoic-Paleozoic boundary. It's actually this biggest drop in the diversity curve. It's also known as the Permo-Triassic boundary from the name of the Permian, the last stage of the Paleozoic, and the Triassic, the first stage of the following Mesozoic era. At that time, it seems that possibly up to 95% of the species disappeared. Possibly more than 99% of all individuals disappeared. Life was almost wiped out from Earth to 1%. I mean, I think this is mind-boggling, and I think when you talk about a mass extinction, you have to realize that this is an absolutely frightening, massive, unusual event. This has happened few times in the Earth's history, but as we will see and as has been made popular by Stephen Jay Gould, for instance, these very few, very short instances have shaped the world the way we know it now. You see, there are two older peaks I won't talk much about because we don't know from this, my standpoint as much as we know that for the more recent ones. Within the Paleozoic, about 360 million years ago, the so-called Franian, Famenian extinction, and the oldest one we know for the Phanerozoic, which is the Ordovician, Silurian boundary, some 430 million years ago. So these are the five biggies. What could they be due to? I'm going to focus for a while on the most recent mass extinction, the ones in which the famous dinosaurs disappeared. Again, as I said, dinosaurs being often large animals, we have few, relatively few remnants of these animals. They're not going to be the best indicator of what happened. The best indicator will be studying microfossils in the marine realm, a topic on which Goethe Keller here is an expert. So dinosaurs rule the earth, but they're gone, and all that is left in case you're lucky enough to find such a nice fossil, is uh, these things you see in museums. There have been well over 100 theories proposed for explaining the extinction of dinosaurs in the last 100 and 
20 or so years, approximately one new theory per year. Most of these were serious, published, and are now known to be uh, erroneous or unreasonable. They were not very popular. People didn't talk much about that. You must all have heard about crazy stories like uh, dinosaurs being slow to react nervously. So uh, before the time they realized that some animal was eating their tail and to their guts, I mean, they were barely realizing what was going on. I mean, there were other apparently not serious but seriously published theories, such as the fact that their diet led their eggs to have thinner shells and that when the mothers, if it was the mothers, sat on the eggs to hatch them, they would crush them. Uh, that was published as a serious theory and many others. Anyway, until 1980, nothing was taken very seriously on the subject until that famous, and I think now world-famous, paper by Luis and Walter Alvarez, father and son in Berkeley, a physicist and a geologist, together with a couple of colleagues specialized in geochemistry. And for reasons I'll remind you of, although I think most of you are aware of that and are being taught that in high school, uh, the idea was that a meteorite or comets or fragments of something hit Earth and generated the mass extinction uh, 65 million years ago. Very quickly, and actually it had started before, another competing, apparently competing theory was developed which suggested that it was uh, fumes from massive volcanism on Earth that was actually responsible for the climatic changes that led to the biological extinctions. I would like from the onset to say that, first, as a scientist, like most of my colleagues, I was tremendously excited back in 1980 when this theory of the meteorite came out. Uh, when I first read the paper, I was immediately convinced it was right. Then I spent some years thinking I was not so sure. And after a long story I don't have time to summarize completely, I will tell you that my present understanding is that, indeed, the evidence for a large asteroid impact is quite good and is now generally accepted, even though some very distinguished scientists are not yet fully sure, I would say that this is most likely. The uh, picture at the lower left is from a field section in Italy. It is the field section from which the original samples that Alvarez, the Alvarez has studied came from. What you see here is limestone beds. They are tilted because some local collision of continents has raised the Apennine Mountains, has folded the strata. But still, you can recognize the original horizontal bedding of the rocks. On the lower right, these are whitish limestone for, from the latest stage of the Mesozoic era, the Cretaceous. And on the upper left, the apparently grayish, but actually in the field they're more pinkish limestones, are from the tertiary or Cenozoic era. We've changed era in the small, one-inch thick clay layer which sits in the middle diagonal of this figure. And the question which the Alvarezes asked themselves 20 years ago was, how much time is contained in that one inch of clay? Is it a long time with no sedimentation, no sediment deposition, or is it a very short time? And the idea they had was to measure a very rare metal, rare in the Earth's crust, iridium, which belongs to the same family as platinum, very, very seldom found in large quantities in the Earth's crust, and they found the distribution of concentrations, which you see on the lower right. This orange peak shows that there is a strong concentration of iridium at precisely the level of the clay. 
And when you think about the various ways in, you, in which you can bring iridium to earth, there's continuously raining a, a, on us a fine rain of micrometeorites, which are in a way rich in iridium. We know what the flux of continuously infalling material is to generate an amount of iridium uh, identical to what is shown by that peak, you needed way too much time to be acceptable for a geologist. So the conclusion they came to is there have to have been an input of iridium on Earth, and it couldn't come from the crust, because the Earth's crust has no iridium, or very little. This observation, together with a number of other ones, in which I tend to think that one of the most convincing is this picture of a grain of quartz, seen under the microscope in polarizing, analyzed light, displays the nice colors that you have under these microscopes, under these conditions, but more importantly, you see that there are two families of black, straight, parallel lines, which the crystallographer knows are special crystalline planes in quartz, and these defects can be formed only when a tremendous shock wave goes through the crystal. And the only way we know to this day to generate such a shock wave is, if it's a natural thing, an impact of a meteorite indeed on Earth, which can shock material. It's been reproduced in the lab. It can also occur, quote, naturally, unquote, in, uh, on sites uh, of nuclear explosions. The blast generates a shockwave that can lead to the same features. So this notion of shock minerals, iridium, led to the famous Alvarez hypothesis that a 10-kilometer diameter bolide had hit Earth 65 million years ago. And even though, because of what we know about continental drift and plate tectonics, it would have been quite plausible that the crater never be found, it seems to have been found in Yucatan Peninsula in uh, Mexico at the location shown on the globe here. And the way it was found was through uh, geophysical analysis that was undertaken in the course of looking for oil in the sediments in this part of uh, Mexico. Uh, the technique that was used was determining the gravity or the attraction or the density of the uh, 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 sub-level uh, rocks. And you see the map of this gravity anomaly in the upper left corner despite the fact that this area has been disturbed by tectonics in the last 60 million years, you can clearly see a circular or multi-circular structure, which is approximately 150 kilometers or 100 miles in diameter, which is now interpreted as a major hole in the granitic basement under the sediments left by the impact of a large uh, meteorite approximately the size that had been expected by the Alvarezes. So all of this together led ground to the now generally accepted idea that dinosaurs and other species at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary were wiped out by the infalling of a meteorite. If I were 100% American trained, or if I were 10 years ago, I probably would stop now and tell you that's the story we know. Actually, if you read American textbooks for undergraduates, in most cases, that's all they will tell you. And most of you, I would bet, believe that, sure enough, this is one of the great examples of scientific inference. We know it. We've shown that an impact killed the dinosaurs. And a little survey of books and students and researchers 
will show very significant differences between the uh, North American and European populations in this respect. Half of the books in Europe quote another theory as being a potential alternative. Only one book that I know of in the U.S. does at the undergraduate level. That's a book by a distinguished friend of co and colleague of ours, Frank Press, a former uh, presidential advisor and uh, president of the Academy of Sciences, who in the latest fifth edition of his famous book, Understanding Earth, has added 20 lines on the possibility that another thing might have happened, namely the volcanic theory, which I'll spend some time on. One busy slide here, maybe not too simple to look at, to remind you that everything we're saying is based on observation and is only as good as our observations are and, of course, as our understanding of these observations is. The basic data we have to look at evolution of life is fossils. The basic scientists who tell us about that are paleontologists. They record occurrences of fossils. They display these on diagrams showing where in the geological record fossils appear. And very often the diagrams are shown in the way that you see on the left side where time is now running from bottom to top and where each black line shows on a timeline or if you prefer on a stratigraphic section on a rock face whether a certain species was found as a fossil you find that there is a level at which you find the last appearance of the fossil, you think, well, this is the time when it disappeared. If you draw a pattern of all the species you find in a certain rock section or environment, you can find various kinds of extinctions which have been labeled graded mass extinction, catastrophic extinction, and stepwise mass extinction, and I think these terms are rather self-explanatory. In the first cartoon up, you see that species disappear, but in sort of a graded fashion as new species emerge. So really the extinction is a peak in a fairly continuous event. The alternative suggested by the Alvarez scenario of the meteorite is that one geologically instantaneous event wipes out a number of species, and leaves a few survivors which are the root or the ancestors for the newly evolving and developing species. And then you have other scenarios among which the third one down there which suggests that you have a sequence of discrete events, a few of them, a few, we don't know how much time yet apart, that are actually responsible for the mass extinction. And there are many questions with how you can trust and interpret these paleontological data. You can ask questions, simple questions such as, is the last bone I found really the time of extinction of the species? Being preserved as a fossil is a rare thing. There is very small chance that any of us will see any piece of us, including a hard bone, preserved and found by a paleontologist 10 million years from now, there still are such strange beings as paleontologists or humans around 10 million years from now. Clearly, because fossilization is rare, you may very well have a local effect which is not a global effect, and the last bone is most likely not the time of the last appearance. Of course, if you take small beings which are very numerous in a small specimen, you improve your chance of recording extinction time. The problem is many things can happen to a sediment after deposition. It can be bioturbated, meaning that the sediment can be moved around by diggers, worms, that will mix up levels that were originally timelines which become smeared, you can have erosion, 
and rock is removed and you've lost information on time, the rock which is removed can be redeposited elsewhere and you bring things which are from a different time to a younger time. You can have other things which I've listed which I don't want to comment too much on. This is just to tell you that reading the fossil record is in no means a simple and straightforward thing. It requires great expertise and some of the most expert scientists can still and do still to this day debate on the interpretation they will give of a given observed rock record. In any case, you can show that a gradual mass extinction can look like a, a, a catastrophic one and vice versa if some of these processes come into action and you don't recognize them in the field. So this is just to give us a sobering uh, reminder that everything we're going to say here is based on an interpretation of data which are difficult to interpret, which are prone to error. This is a living science. It's going on, and certainly the last word has not been spoken. All of this being said, not being myself a paleontologist, having, as I said, zero experience of what dinosaurs are. I mean, I'm often labeled as a specialist of dinosaurs. I was clearly by the Minister of Education when he felt I could eradicate dinosaurs from the ministry. Uh, clearly I'm not, and reading the paleontological literature, I feel I have a way of telling who's showing me data I believe I can trust. Clearly I can be wrong. In this course, and this is one reason for my being very happy to be here, I've been uh, very impressed by Goethe Keller's work uh, as of, I forgot, 15 years ago is probably when we first met, and uh, I saw her work. And what she's claiming, in, these are real diagrams like the black ones you saw on the previous slide, in two sections, one in Texas, the other in Tunisia, straddling the famous Cretaceous tertiary boundary, uh, the dotted black line in each case representing the peak in iridium concentration, which is taken to mark the time of impact of the meteorite, she and her colleagues find that actually some extinctions were going on prior to impact time. So even though, and it's not always obvious, a number of extinctions correlate with the time of the meteorite and the iridium peak, something was going on before that. So the story cannot be that simple. And I am with Goethe and others among the people who for the last 15 years have believed that the meteorite site was a, a lovely story, but clearly could not explain the entire body of evidence which we believed we had. Another thing which more recently Goethe pointed out to me and in a paper that she sent me was that you have to be careful in which indicators of changes in biodiversity you use. If you use the number of species, which is what most of us do, and you find, as is the case in some sections at the KT or Cretaceous tertiary boundary, that two-thirds of the species have disappeared, your next question is, how much of life is that? I mean, you hear two-thirds of species, you think it's two-thirds of life on Earth. Well, not at all. Many of the species that were uh, affected by whatever happened and disappeared uh, are actually represented by very small populations. And if you go from species to population, what she tells me is that only 5 to 10% of the total population disappeared at mass extinction time. So you see that depending on which indicator you're looking at, the intensity of the event and the way it's spread in time does not give you the same image. Which takes me to uh, how I got into this in a very serendipitous way back 16 years ago now with 
my colleagues. I went to India. You have a geological map of India here. And for reasons I don't want to dwell on too much, we were interested in uh, measuring continental drift. I was trying to see how much India had moved into Asia as the two collided to generate the huge Himalayan range and the Tibetan plateau. And in order to measure that, I used a technique which is called paleomagnetism, in which uh, we determine the magnetization of rock which has been frozen in when the rock cooled. And in a way, I'll show you in a minute, actually this tells us at which latitude the rock was formed. So by following the changes in magnetization, I can follow the changes in latitude so I can check a component of continental drift. And I needed to compare some rocks from the Cretaceous from about 100 million years ago, which I had measured in Tibet, and I wanted to compare them with rocks of the same age in India. So I had a look at the geological map, and green is in general the international color for the Cretaceous, the last time of the Mesolithic era. And you see there's this big green uh, spot which covers a fourth of India. And so we said, gee, we've got the good rocks, let's go there, and we'll be able to measure the drift of India into Asia. What the field looks like, you see in the better exposed section in the upper left picture here, is a succession of tens and tens of huge basaltic lava flows. They're showing very well in the most eroded part of the Western Ghats, the Western coast of India, for instance, uh, close to Bombay. Those of you who've gone to India, and uh, some have done geology, but those who went for tourism may have visited the beautiful temples of Ellora and Ajanta. They're carved Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain temples carved inside these lava cliffs. These flows are incredibly large. Some of them can be as thick as 100 meters, and some of them can be followed as long as 100 kilometers on the side. We believe that the volume of some single flows may have exceeded 1,000 cubic kilometers. To give you an idea, the largest basaltic flow ever emitted uh, at a time when man could witness it and record it was in 1783 in Iceland, actually described in a very famous paper by Benjamin Franklin, who at the time was the envoy of the young American Republic to the court of King Louis XVI, and he was trying to get funding and soldiers for the revolution. And when he was not in the court, he was doing science. And uh, in Paris, in a nice little house in Passy, he wrote the first paper we know of that connects volcanism with climate change. He suggested that the ongoing eruption in Iceland he had heard of was responsible for the lousy winter that covered most of the Northern Hemisphere and much of Europe in the winter of 1783-1784. Well, that flow in Iceland was 12 cubic kilometers. The largest historical basaltic flow we know of was 12 cubic kilometers. A single very large flow from this pile was 100 times larger, and there are hundreds of flows. So clearly, this is a massive thing. We believe a lot of the lava has been eroded since it was formed. We believe the original volume must have been something like 2 million cubic kilometers. I have my own scaling to get an image in my uh, mind's eye. You probably would select another one. Uh, this volume would cover all of France in four kilometers or 2.5 miles of lava. So this is the volume of the body that was spewed out of the earth 
some time ago, and we wanted to sample that. So on the lower left, you're seeing some of my colleagues sampling the lava uh, in a nice surrounding, and so we're bringing the rocks back to the lab. This is one of our graduate students working on the magnetometer in our Paris lab, and what we do is essentially measure the magnetization of the rock. And uh, I'll show you a little later. I guess I'm not so well organized here, but I know I have slides coming up to explain to you a little better why it's interesting to measure the magnetization of the rock. But before I do that, the first thing we wanted to do was to date the rock, and uh, geochronologists have many methods by which they can use the natural radioactive decay of elements uh, to measure the age of a rock. You're almost certainly all aware of the carbon-14 technique, which is used to date archaeological samples. The, the technique works only back to a few thousands, at most tens of thousands of years, because after that time, all of the uh, uh, radioactive uh, atoms have disappeared. Well, there are other elements that have much longer lifetimes in the billions of years, and they are used as clocks to measure geological time. We've applied that to uh, the section which you saw on the previous figure. That cross-section is located from Bombay to the town of Igatpuri in the Western Ghats of India on the map in, in the upper right corner. Uh, that cross-section is shown on the lower right with altitude. The total height here is about 1,500 meters. We collected samples where you see the black dots, and we measure their age using one of the many radiometric techniques known as argon-39, argon-40, which uses measurements of the 39 and 40 isotopes of the rare gas argon. And the values we got are coming out now. At the base of the column, we found 65.4 million years. In the middle of the section, 65.0 and 0.4. At the top, 65.7 and 0.8 plus or minus in each case something which is in excess of a million years. That's as well as we can do now with the best techniques. We cannot date rocks to better than a few percent. You immediately see two things. One is 65 million years ago is the time when the dinosaurs disappeared. Two is the uncertainty on each of these ages is larger than the difference between top and bottom. So the thing you get is, haha, time when the dinosaurs disappeared, Aha, uh -huh, short time. All of that lava in less time than I can resolve with my method. Well, there are methods that allow to do better, and one of them is this technique of paleomagnetism, measuring the magnetization of rocks that I was mentioning. I believe in your science classes, however far in the past they may be, most of you have looked at the famous experiment in which you put a magnet under a table, piece of paper on the table, you sprinkle Mag uh, iron filing, and you see that the iron filing arranges itself in lines, which are called the lines of force of the magnetic field, and they look just like the lines I've drawn here. Uh, they are the lines of force of the field of the Earth. This is a cross-section through the Earth. The Earth actually behaves like a large magnet, the magnet being more or less aligned along the axis of rotation of the Earth, with the two magnetic poles not very far from the two geographic poles. The angle at which the magnetic direction strikes with respect to the horizontal depends on latitude. Uh, you can see on the right side of the Earth section that if you are at the North Pole, the field is sticking, I mean the South Pole, the field is sticking vertical up in the air. If you are at the North Pole, which is a South Magnetic Pole, which is why you have an S here, it's actually vertical downwards. On the equator, 
it's dead flat, it's horizontal, and it takes all possible directions between flat and vertical as a known function of latitude. For instance, I haven't checked that, but I would say in this room, I have completely lost my sense of direction. If you tell me where north is, where is north? That's a good check of how well-oriented you are. Okay, north being here, in this room, the magnetic field is probably about 45 degrees below the horizontal. We are essentially halfway between being vertical and being horizontal. If a lava erupts in this room, cools, it will freeze in the magnetic field of the Earth. And millions of years afterwards, if I collect a piece of that rock and I measure its magnetization in the lab and I see it's pointing 45 degrees, I will tell you this rock was erupted at the latitude of Princeton. And I can do that anywhere, and that's how part of paleomagnetism works. That's how we can measure uh, continental drift. I guess paleomagnetists started as uh, measurers of continental drift. But the field does something else which is rather strange. It reverses. There were many times in Earth's history when the uh, magnet, which we call the dipole at the center of the Earth, was actually reversed. There was an exchange between the north and south magnetic pole. And these flips of the field, one, are now known to be fast geological events that take place in the course of a few thousand years. By the way, the magnetic field in this room has decreased by a factor of two since the time of the Romans. I shouldn't talk about Romans here, I guess. But uh, if you extrapolate that in 2,000 years, you get to zero. So a question which I leave open for the moment, are we in the midst of a magnetic reversal? Maybe. Anyway, the field has reversed hundreds of times in the history of the Earth, and by carefully working on the ages of these rocks, many, many teams around the world, working for many decades, have assembled a magnetic reversal time scale. We now know the pattern of the reversals going back from the present, which is to the right, to, in this case, 170 million years ago. This covers the Cenozoic, the Cretaceous, and part of the Jurassic eras. You see that this looks very much like a barcode in your local store. The pattern is highly regular. This means that reversals are absolutely not periodical. If you give me a small but not too small slice of that barcode, I can tell you exactly where you are. So you see that if I go up and down rocks and measure the pattern of the reversals, and there are enough reversals, I can tell you how old your rock is and how much time has been recorded by the rock. So this is what we wanted to do in the Deccan, and what we found was only two reversals. The base of that huge lava pile is magnetized in the same sense as today. The central part is reversed. The top is again in the same sense as today, which of course, since it's like today, we call normal. So you have a normal magnetization, reverse magnetization, normal magnetization, two reversals of the field have occurred. We know that we're around 65 million years ago, but we don't know very precisely. All we know is that we have a bit of black, a white, and a bit of black. Clearly, having two reversals does not allow us to tell exactly where we are. Any correlation is possible, but only a few are compatible with the argon-argon radiochronologic date. And a third thing that we did was that we were lucky enough to find fossils in sediments deposited in lakes that established themselves at times when volcanism lulled. 
There were slowdowns in volcanism, stopping periods in which lakes reestablished themselves, sediments were deposited, life came back, and we have fossils. And one fossil which one of my colleagues found is this small uh, millimeter-sized tooth of a ray, which is typical from the latest stage of the Mesozoic era. By combining the fact that only two magnetic reversals have been observed in the lava pile, that the age is about 65 million years ago, that is the age when the dinosaurs disappeared, and that the lava began erupting at a time which we can date from the fossils as being the latest part of the Mesozoic era, only one correlation in that long barcode is possible. That correlation implies that the large reverse magnetic field period, which is most of the central part of the lava pile, has a little name we call it or her or I don't know how, what's the sex of a magnetic reversal or crone, uh, 29R. It's the reversed 29th couple, more or less. And we know from the work of the Alvarezes in Italy that the iridium level is smack in the middle of 29R. So we have shown in great detail that the time of the meteorite impact and the time of the uh, uh, eruption of the Deccan traps, I didn't mention their name, but that's how they're called, was the same to the kind of precision of one million years which we geologists know about. So that raised concern that if you have the, one of the largest volcanic pulses on Earth occurring at the same time as when the dinosaurs and all the other species disappeared, it's pretty hard to escape the idea that there might be a causal connection and that it's not just a chance correlation. So some 16 years ago, we proposed a scheme. I don't want to go too much into this picture, which may be a little overcrowded, but we suggested that volcanism in the Deccan had actually occurred in a sporadic, episodic fashion with a few rather brief pulses altogether occurring over something like a half million years, but some of these pulses being possibly uh, concentrated over a much smaller amount of time and being what probably would have altered the climate through injection of volcanic gases and in that way made life difficult for species. More recently, colleagues of mine in India have found, and we went there back with them to check it because we felt it was so important, iridium in sediments which are sandwiched between the Deccan lavas. The little map map here in the center shows you where we are in the Kutch area, which is in the uh, northwestern part of India. It's a difficult area to work in. It's difficult to map, but to uh, tell things in a short uh, sentence, we found anomalous iridium in sediments that were sandwiched between lava flows, which demonstrates that the lava eruption had begun prior to the impact of the meteorite. This is Absolute dating is not precise enough to tell us how they were placed with respect to each other. Basic 19th century stratigraphic and sedimentologic observation tells us simply that there cannot be any causal connection, as, of course, you might have started thinking about. Hey, why didn't the meteorites strike Earth and start the basalt? We could discuss that, but we don't need to because we have evidence that it is not what happened. 
Now that I've spent probably more than enough time, I've tried to say things slowly and clearly, but clearly I've been going too slow, and uh, I have a lot of material left to cover, so if you think it's boring or you're tired, you have to start like any good class to move around and make noises and uh, accelerate. Uh, the thing is, we have, as I would say as a physicist, I have only one point on my curve, and we don't like to have only one point to draw a curve. We like to have many points. So immediately we say, okay, I know quite a bit about what happened at the time of the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. What about other cases? Do we have other cases for impact? Do we have other cases for massive flood basalt volcanism? The answer is we have a few impacts, not many, mostly because they've been often covered, sedimented over, or eroded. We have quite a few, though not many, flood basalts. They're shown here on this map in black. There's on the order of 10 such beings on Earth. It's not a very frequent occurrence. Something geological which occurs only about 10 times is a rather, a rather rare thing. And in the last 10, 15 years, my team and many other teams around the world have gone to each one of these lava and has repeated the kind of work that we had been doing 16 years ago in the Deccan in India. And I'm going very briefly and incompletely to go through some of these, showing you these lava at the time they were erupted on a reconstruction of Earth as it was at the time when they erupted. So going back from 65 million years ago, Deccan trap eruptions, back to 133 million years ago, we find that this is what the Earth looked like. You see that Africa and South America were still joined together in a single continent. They had not yet broken apart to uh, let space for the South Atlantic Ocean. And a big flood basalt erupted at that time in the central southern part of the continent. It's now known as the Piranha Trap. A piece of it is actually found on the African continent in Namibia. It's been broken into by the opening of the South Atlantic. And sure enough, although there is no mass extinction at that time, none of the five big spikes you saw in the second or third slide, there is a significant event which is called the N. Valanginian extinction event. Not a very striking case. Let's go back in the past a little further. Uh, I guess the eruption that should be of most interest to you is the one that covered most of Eastern North America, Western Africa, going all the way to Spain in Europe, and Venezuela and Colombia in, North, in South America. It's a huge eruption that occurred exactly 200 million years ago. You've all seen it. The lava fills the Newark Basin and comes out along the Hudson as the Palisades Sill. So each time you uh, drive across the George Washington Bridge and you see these big columns of lava, you're seeing part of the lava that was erupted at that time just prior to the breakup of uh, Gondwana and the opening of the Central Atlantic Ocean. And sure enough, this correlates exquisitely well, and I could give you the evidence, but I don't have time, with one of the major mass extinctions, the one at the Triassic-Jurassic boundary 200 million years ago. Then I'm going back 50 million years more in Siberia, and this is where this place, or what this place looked like 250 million years ago. There's a huge flood basalt. It's been very well dated. It correlates absolutely remarkably well with the largest mass extinction in the Phanerozoic, the Paleozoic Mesozoic extinction. Now, an interesting thing is that we have found another much less well-known trap in South China called the Emation Trap. 
which happens to be a few million years older. And the reason why we got interested in that was that many scientists had noted that the sea level, which they can record through a careful look at the sediments, had dipped twice at about the time of the Permo-Triassic boundary. You see this in the left curve, where low sea level is to the left, and you see there are two sharp dents. One is clearly at the time of the Siberian traps, 250 million years ago. Another one is about 8 million years earlier, at the end of a stage called the Guadalupian. That doesn't tell us about mass extinction, but back in 1994, Stanley and Young published a very detailed story of extinction versus appearance rate, subdividing that period of time in a finer way than had been available before, and they found, this is shown in the right side, two sharp peaks of extinction, which were 8 million years apart, one of them being at the end of the same Guadalupian stage of the Paleozoic era of the Permian. So having the sea level doublet and the extinction doublet, we had to be fair and say, well, I think that the most recent one is the Siberian traps and it's dated. I've got to find another trap and date it. And sure enough, we found the trap in South China. Uh, the map is in the center right, and you see which part of Yunnan and Sichuan province we're in. A more detailed map shows you in gray the bits and pieces of that trap. The reason no one had found it so far is it's been completely broken up in the collision of India with Asia. It's been sheared, part of it has been eroded away, tectonized, and only small, not so small remnants are left. So of course we mapped it, did geochemistry, and a group of Chinese and Australian scientists collected samples which they dated with another technique of radiochronology uh, using uranium, thorium, and lead isotopes. And just a few months ago, they published the date, and sure enough, 258 plus or minus 2 million years. Even though I wished precision was better, this is completely compatible with what we said, and I call this a successful prediction of our model. I put prediction between quotes because predicting something that happened 258 million years ago doesn't look like a prediction. It's a backwards prediction, but it was a very satisfying thing. In passing, although it's not related to my main subject, but it's related to a talk I gave yesterday in uh, uh, the Division of Geosciences, and it's of interest to my geophysical colleagues, uh, if you make a reconstruction of the Atlantic Ocean bordering continents prior to opening the Atlantic, you find that the three ocean basins, as I showed you, correlate with the eruption of three huge flood basalts, each of which correlates with either a mass extinction or a minor but significant extinction, so that I would argue that the present-day geography of the entire Atlantic Ocean bears the memory of three times 70 million years apart when something coming from inside of the Earth hit the surface and erupted as a flood result, showing you that these events, which are in this lecture of interest for evolution, are actually of major interest for understanding the geodynamic evolution of the deeper Earth. I've shown you four or five examples. I don't want to bore you. We have compiled a whole list. Actually, Jason Morgan has uh, years ago compiled earlier versions of this list of all the traps known to us on Earth, of the best present-day ages that we know for these traps, and we've tried to see whether they would correlate with major or minus mass extinctions. And I think the major success we've come with is that the last most recent four mass extinctions, all without one mistake, correlate with a well-dated major trap. 
There are the uh, Cretaceous Tertiary, Triassic, Jurassic, Pond Triassic, and Guadalupian Tatarian boundary. The earlier ones are not yet studied and known well enough, even though I believe, I don't have time to talk about that here, that I have found the trap which generated the immediately previous mass extinction 360 million years ago, and the rocks we collected in eastern Siberia are currently being dated by two labs, one being mine and the other Paul Rennie's lab in Berkeley. Better than looking at that table, it's uh, easier to look at the correlation if you plot on a horizontal axis the age of each one of these flood basalts and on a vertical axis the age of each one of the major and minor mass extinctions you saw on the spike curve, you find that these data points with their uncertainties, this time we have put on uncertainties, when you don't see a little cross, it just means it's smaller than the circle that is shown on the plot, you find that the four major mass extinctions, the four red dots, correlate with uh, uh, flood basalts uh, to as good precision as you can hope, and most of the other ones do too. So basically, the case in favor of a correlation of most flood basalts with most major biosphere events, I believe, is now absolutely overwhelming. I'm going to try and run a little faster through the end of my talk. I had a little discussion about the time scales of mass extinction to tell you that I believe there are three real existing embedded time scales of mass extinction, which we must all understand a long one. I haven't talked much about on the 100,000 to million year time scales. A faster one, which is the one I talked most about with the volcanism on the order of 100,000 years, and a very short one for which we have only one example which is the Cretaceous tertiary boundary and the Mexican impact. We know I mentioned the case of Benjamin Franklin and his early publication on the lack eruption, that volcanism can affect climate. Actually, in the last 15 years, we've made tremendous progress in understanding how and why and which gases emitted by volcanoes most affect climate. For instance, the role of sulfur dioxide has uh, been found to be prominent, and so it's hard to escape the idea that when you scale up what we know about present-day eruption to the amazing size of the trap, you have to figure out a crack in the earth 400 kilometers long, a fire fountain in excess of a mile high, a flow in excess of 100 times the largest historical flow. You can calculate how many uh, moles or how much gases, carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, other gases have been injected in the atmosphere, and we're now reaching a stage where geochemists and climatologists are beginning to tell us how and why the climate, the coupled climate between the uh, ocean and the atmosphere could have been affected. Is this jumping? It's not jumping on my screen. It's jumping uh, over there, so I don't know why. Anyway, this complex diagram is just to show you that Climatologists are beginning to work out the relationships between injection of gases, cooling, acid rain, greenhouse effect, warming, continental extinction, oceanic extinction, and these are being worked out more and more precisely. We're beginning to have a vague picture. I believe in the coming years we're going to have a much more quantitative picture, and we have a good, good case that indeed flood basalts are a major uh, uh, um, uh, forcing function of climate and that actually the times of the flood basalt eruptions are the very times 
which saw the largest climatic, briefest and largest climatic changes in the Earth's history. And I believe possibly this can be traced back to a billion years. In very recent times, I was discussing that with George Philander, a colleague of mine has suggested that the famous snowball uh, Earth, uh, the fact that 700 million years ago the Earth may have been entirely covered in snow, could have started with the eruption of a massive trap. But this is another story. So these people can predict the amount of cooling due to sulfur dioxide, the change in acidity of the ocean, the change in temperature. They can predict the changes in ocean chemistry. So we're getting to a time when we're beginning to do modeling, and that's interesting. I've quoted Walter Alvarez, and I would like to acknowledge his uh, tremendous contribution uh, to science and to reviving parts of the Earth sciences in the last 20 years. And I would also like to acknowledge uh, how gentleman he can be. I gave a previous version of this talk in uh, Los Angeles at the beginning of this year, and in front of an audience that was entirely pro-meteorite impact, he stood up and said that after a 20-year search, even though 20 years ago he would have bet that he would find an impact for every mass extinction, he still had only one. And he conceded that the case of a correlation with, with flood results was a much better one. It doesn't mean he's thinking that his impact at the KT is not important. He's acknowledging that it only accounts for part of what one sees at dinosaur time, but at none of the other mass extinctions. And we tend not to like unique cases too much in the sciences. I think our compilation has even increased the number of uh, correlations to a large number. And I only want in this slide to point out the uh, third line from the bottom. Most people quote the Shikskulub Mexican impact indeed as possibly correlating with the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, even though I've learned today from Goethe Keller that it could actually predate the boundary by a few hundred thousand years, which is a, a very exciting news that needs to be confirmed. But in any case, uh, there are many large craters that are now fairly well dated that have no mass extinction associated. So we know that a large crater However frightening it must be to see a 1 to 10 kilometer body falling on Earth destroying an area the size of England, it is not sufficient to generate a mass extinction. Again, I want to emphasize a mass extinction is amazing, overwhelming, and apparently an impact is not sufficient to generate one. Moreover, statistical analysis of cratering rate on the moon and reappraisal of that rate on Earth suggests that an event the size of the one found by the Alvarezes, originally thought to be a one in a hundred million year event, could be even rarer and could be the only such thing in the last one billion years of Earth history. So, my new way of asking the questions at the KT boundary are, well, clearly, most of the time there's a flood basalt, no meteorite, and yet you get a mass extinction. Would there have been at the KT a mass extinction if there had been no Deccan traps? Would there have been a mass extinction if there had been no impact? And I think I have an answer which will never be checked, of course. And if you want to know what the answer is, we can discuss that later. In conclusion, I want to, uh, I've been emphasizing contributions from Princeton. I want to emphasize that uh, certainly one of the people I have most respect for and who has inspired me tremendously and who's the father of many of the ideas and one of the persons who have earliest thought about these uh, uh, very controversial ideas very early on is Jason Morgan. And I end up with this poetic sentence. I hope you find it poetic. 
that flood basalt eruptions have punctuated the ballet of continent drift for at least the last 260 million years, I believe actually for the last one billion years, even though before life appeared on the continents and before life was preserved in the form of skeletal fossils, it's clearly very difficult to tell. On this little cartoon of actual continental drift over the last 260 million years, you're seeing big red dots coming out once in a while. There are the traps erupting at the time of each one of the major extinctions. They do correspond to major climatic and biologic crises, and I hope in that sense I've convinced you that the case for the fact that the main process that periodically, episodically, reorients evolution at a few brief but key times is a clear case. And I'll leave you with this lovely statue of Shiva, the god of random destruction and rebirth, carved in the Deccan basalt as an excellent image of what I've been trying to tell you about. Thank you. So, one, an apology for being 15 minutes over time. Two, uh, telling those of you who feel they have to go back home, I won't be offended if you stand up and leave. And three, telling those of you who feel they still have courage that I'd be delighted to entertain whatever questions or criticism you may have. Yeah. because it shows Saudi Arabia and Iraq uh, being separated. <laughs> Maybe they didn't hear that one. It's been uh, known for a long time that plate tectonics can solve geopolitical problems. <laughs> and being closer to your country, uh, as you well know, in seven million years, Los Angeles will pass San Francisco on its way north to being subducted under Alaska. <laughs> um, I guess my real question is, as a uh, computer scientist, I'm, I'm a little amazed at the, the kind of data that is collected to, uh, to come to all these conclusions. Uh, I suppose most of that's done in the old-fashioned way. So my question is, are, are there efforts, um, and I go back to the White House now because uh, General uh, Admiral Poindexter is trying to collect all the information about all of our financial transactions in a large database and do data mining on it uh, within the next five years. Um, is there an effort in the geological community to use computers in uh, a way to have a very, uh, maybe a totally comprehensive database of all these uh, times and events so that you can do mining on it to, to look at particular uh, I mean, you're, you're asking a very complex question, which I'm sure I cannot answer fully. I would like to... Uh, um, disagree with you or compliment what you said when you say, I believe you've been uh, doing all of this in a fairly traditional way. Uh, I think the field of geosciences is a fascinating and amazing field, which in many ways is different from other areas in sciences in that it requires from the practitioner uh, an enormous effort at understanding an incredibly large number of very remote disciplines. I'm a physicist by training. I've worked on the Earth's magnetic field. I'm supposed to deal with Maxwell's equations. And I have had to understand 
biologists talking about DNA, evolution, fossils, chemistry, iridium, meteorite impact, its kinematics, mental convection. Of course, I don't understand all of those fully. I'm not an expert. So message number one, we have to teach our students and behave ourselves in a way where we specialize and hopefully become experts in one area. But we have to be knowledgeable and literate in many diverse areas because, indeed, a lot of the work we do is, in a way, highly nonlinear data mining in the brain. It may not require a computer. It's a form of data correlation and mining. Second point I'd like to make is that a lot of what I showed here briefly is based on an incredible range of techniques, many of which are cutting-edge technology. Behind what I showed you, a lot of it is absolutely not traditional. A lot of the data I showed you were not available two, five, ten years ago. Uh, the first breakthrough I can talk about is the Alvarez work. I sort of brushed by the fact that they found this iridium spike. I may even have said they found a tremendous concentration of iridium at the KT boundary clay. This tremendous concentration is 200 parts per billion over a background less than one part per billion. Measuring this required inventing neutron activation techniques that were unavailable prior to that. And I could add on mass spectrometry, uh, superconducting magnetometry, that many very evolved techniques are required. But, indeed, we will never be able to do without fieldwork. We will never be able to do without proper observation of the field. And we will often find that we get a quicker answer from applying the 19th century, actually the 17th century, Nicolas Steno 1626, principle of superposition. Rocks are originally flat when they're on top of each other. Usually, if nothing strange happened, the older one is below. And if their fossil assemblage looks like and correlate them far away. This is 1626. When we found iridium in the middle of the lava flows, we answered a question that no modern technique could resolve for no money and using 1626 techniques. In that way, we're proud to still be using traditional techniques, but we're also using cutting-edge technology. Coming to data mining, I would separate computer usage from data mining. We tend to be great users of computers, and there are a number of things we can do. For instance, mimic mimicking the convection of rock in Earth with scales of time and viscosity which can never be reached in experiments. We can do numerical experimenting, and here at Princeton, you have uh, experts on doing that. Our host tonight, Peter Bunga, is an expert on massive parallel computing. He has assembled here a Beowulf computer array. A lot of what we're doing uses the largest available uh, computer resources. All of this is blended and hidden behind a general audience presentation that cannot go into these techniques. As to data mining, I am more reserved, I must confess, I think that a uh, lot of people do data mining when they have no ideas. Uh, I believe that you're allowed to do data mining only if you have acquired yourself the highest quality data, contributed them to the database. Then you can start looking at other people's data. Those who analyze data by data mining who are not familiar with acquisition of these data should beware of what they get out of that.
Yes. Uh, would you comment that uh, with these uh, new discoveries, how should we revise, reject, or restrict Darwin's theory? Um, because as your last slide show, survival is a chance and uh, has to do with uh, I can hear you, and I'll repeat the question for the audience. My, my second question is not very serious. You mentioned that, uh, for instance, if a major event will wipe out England, I wonder why you choose England. <laughs> I chose England because I was not aware of which state in the U.S. I should mention that had about the same surface. And I had already quoted France 1 for the thickness of lava, and I didn't want to use only France as my example. So that's your answer to uh, the second question. The first one is a very important question. It's been dealt with in the U.S. by many scientists and in popular science extremely well by Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, in many books, the most uh, uh, interesting one for what we're discussing tonight being uh, Wonderful Life. And if you haven't read that book, I strongly urge you to read that story. Uh, basically, indeed, the tradition, although none of the laws of evolution, none of the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology, as we understand them, are challenged, what we believe is that 19th century geology has been built on a basis called uniformitarianism, which assumes that uh, all that we see in geology is due to the physics and chemistry we know of today, except it's done over this incredible amount of time. This is valid. What is not valid and yet was pushed forward in the 19th century is that never has the amplitude of events been larger than what we've been able to sample in human culture. As early as 1830, uh, noted, or not so noted, British geologist, William Ewell, uh, wrote against this dogmatic vision of uniformitarianism that I quoted first by saying something like, uh, uh, you have to be incredibly bold to believe that man has been around long enough to sample what we would call today the entire spectrum of amplitudes of changes of natural phenomena. And indeed, we now know that Phenomena which are incredibly more intense than anything we've witnessed since the human species exists have occurred at short, few times in the past. So the vision of evolution we have now is that most of the time, 95% of the time, Darwin was right. You have what I would call normal evolution, survival of the fittest, blah, blah, blah. And then at some key times, you cannot say you are Darwinian anymore because you are hit by a meteorite or a volcanic eruption that had not occurred for 30 million years, you cannot say you are unprepared and should have been prepared. So I call those times survival of the luckiest. So you have long times of normal Darwinian evolution, which are interrupted by brief events of survival of the luckiest. Yet, these times of mass extinction are vacating enormous number of ecological niches and allowing well-developed species that survive to experiment with evolution, find niches that were previously unavailable, which explains the exponential rebound of life after a mass extinction, leading you to a new equilibrium which can be higher than the previous one. In that way, the curve of evolution looks like it's increasing monotonously. Actually, it's not. It's just for those of you who are 
uh, more quantitatively minded, it's most likely a, a series of uh, logistic curves. So actually you're developing exponentially, reaching a plateau, equilibrium, until something hits you, which starts the machine again and leads it to a new equilibrium. So that's the revised view of uh, steps of evolution in which massive brief changes completely reorient the game. They're random, they're unpredictable, you could never forecast them ahead of time, and yet once they have arrived, they lead to unavoidable consequences. So there's no doubt that the diversity of life on Earth as it is today is the result of a small number of random, unexpected, unpredictable catastrophes. If you had changed the number, the incidence, the latitude, the size, the chemistry of some of these, you would have the same kind of statistical world, but you wouldn't have the same species, and most likely we wouldn't be around if there hadn't been these catastrophes. I have a um, hard time concept. Does this work now? I, I have a hard time conceptualizing these gigantic lava flows. I understand a volcano. Are these things like one enormous volcano, or are they like a large number of volcanoes, or are they qualitatively different altogether? And do we have the remotest idea what might trigger such a thing? Ooh. These are all loaded questions. Uh, basically, the well, first, my answer is I also have a hard time picturing what happened. Okay? So I agree with that first sentence you uh, said. But we can have some scaled images. I never said, and you're right in asking me to state what kind of volcanism these traps or these flood results were like. The best example you can think of is uh, Iceland or Hawaii. This is volcanism which is emitted through long cracks. It's not explosive. It's quiet flow of a very liquid lava that extends in flat sheets for long distances. And along the crack, while it's erupting, you probably have fire fountains like the Pu'o in Hawaii or like some of the uh, uh, Krafla and some of the eruptions that occurred in the last decades in Iceland, where along the fissure, as the lava gets erupted and flows quietly on the sides, you have dust, gases, which are expelled into the atmosphere, and a continuous or semi-continuous lava fountain. You must have seen pictures of that. The only problem is that in Hawaii or in Iceland, the cracks are one kilometer, the fire fountains are 100 meters, and you have to scale everything by a huge factor. The cracks in Deccan could have been, from the dikes we observe today, 400 kilometers long. And scaling up what we know, the mechanics of the fire fountains, they might have expelled their gases all the way to the stratosphere, higher than 10 kilometers in altitude. So it's a giant scaled-up version of Hawaii, Iceland. Or the Afar, for those of you who like the East Horn of Africa. Okay. Um, then the final question, the toughest one, was what could have started that? And the idea is another talk, or other talks, it's most likely instabilities in the convection of the mantle that lead to material convecting up in big mushroom-shaped features that eventually pierce through the Earth's crust and erupt as that lava or those huge scales. The father of mantle plumes is Jason Morgan.
So ask him to give you the next Van Exem lecture. <laughs> Thank you. I want to take this opportunity to thank our speaker one more time again. I do want to make two remarks that I think are particularly nice to do. The first one is probably a lot of you are left with lots of questions and thoughts that you would like to follow on. Professor Contillot published a book on everything that you saw today a few years ago in French with a beautiful title, La Vie en Catastrophe, that reminds you maybe to a wedding or a home or something else. Anyway, <laughs> the uh, English translation of this book has just appeared in the U-Store. I picked this book up a few weeks ago over in the U-Store. It is called Evolutionary Catastrophes. So if you want to the U-Store, you would find this book right now. The second thing is I want to actually specifically thank a number of students in geological classes Especially, I should point out, students in the class that we teach at GEO in History of the Earth, GEO 206, that have made the trip, and I saw them certainly here in the classroom. And I very much appreciate that our undergraduate students are here tonight. I Thank refuse you. to grade the papers when he's asking the questions. <laughs> so many thanks, and I wish you all good night. Thank you.